This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. Now, the last time we were really uplifted because, you know, it was Jesus stilling the sea and the storms, and we made the parallel about Jesus stilling the seas and the storms in our lives. What good is reading the scripture if we can't apply it personally? There can't be that disconnect. There's got to be something that, that, that binds us to the word and where we can take that and make application. Today we're going to see Jesus cast out a legion of demons from two men. Now this is interesting because Mark and Luke focus on the one particular man, demon-possessed man, and Matthew tells us about the two men because there were two involved. Now some look at this as a Bible discrepancy. Uh, however, I don't see that at all. I can tell you from my expertise in policing, when you've got three or four officers who go to a scene, they come at different times in different police cars, they stand at different places, and they have different vantage points. So the one officer may look at the, maybe the arresting officer, he looks at the head troublemaker, and he's totally focused on that person, and he writes his report accordingly about that one person. The other officers may come and see you know, the aggregate picture, they're not the arresting officers. They're there to keep the order. And they talk about the crowd in, genu- gen- in general. Well, what do you think happens when you've got four cops who write the ex- exact same report about the exact same situation word for word? The word is called collusion. And there can be criminal charges. The attorney general gets involved. Judges get involved. And it's not pretty. It's not a pretty picture for the department. So what I'm telling you is that when we go through the Gospels, I take them synoptically. I like to take the Gospels together and paint the picture as they're all looking at it, which is not an easy thing to do. But understand, each gospel writer is going to see the the event from a different perspective. And this is a hard one. I'm going to tell you why, because you're going to see, I'm going to say man, I'm going to say men. You know, the demons are going to say me, we, they, right? So you can see a lot of pronouns being thrown around, possessive pronouns and such. So if you're a little, it's okay, let's, you know, it was hard for me to put this together and actually teach it. But we're going we're gonna to enjoy this, and, and it's going to be a lot of fun. But we're going to look at really the insight into the spiritual realm in six segments or six parts and make parallels with the Lord uh, helping us to be free from bondage as well. So the title of today's message is free, From Bondage to Freedom. Again, how do we apply this to our lives? Because when we're in the world, when we're unsaved, and we're not born again, we don't have the Spirit of God in us. We're tied and tethered to the earth. We're earthly. And when we die, we don't get to be with God in eternity in heaven. But there's a point in time where God frees us from ourselves, from the world, and from Satan's influences. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, A very famous musician from the group Korn, which was a heavy metal band, uh, Brian Brian Head Welch, He actually wrote a book called Save Me From Myself. That was the title of his book. Great book. A little hard to to read. It was a little graphic, but he really talks about his conversion. Another person I'm going to talk about, and I've spoke briefly about it, is how many of you are familiar with David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Killer? Well, I read his testimony, and that is a powerful testimony. Powerful testimony. And I can see a lot of parallels of a man who, who received Satan into his life, murdered people, and actually, in prison, years later, was saved by an evangelist in prison. Now, I, I tend to believe what he's saying. I mean, sadly, when you go to the parole hearings and stuff, um, sometimes the prison will go, I found Jesus, you know, let me out. But here's a man who says, don't let me out. I've caused too much pain to the families. 
even though that was my former life. I'm going to do my work here in prison. If you ever get a chance, David Berkowitz, read his testimony. It's unbelievably powerful. So we're going to start with the first verse. It said, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So the first segment here is the initial encounter, the meeting. But let me just say this first. Remember how upset the disciples were with that storm crossing the Sea of Galilee? And Jesus said, we're going to get to the other side. Jesus probably knew in his foresight that there were two men that needed help. And the disciples were only thinking about the storms in life. And God was saying, we've got to do some ministry. We're going to get to the other side. Trust me on this one. If you look at the Sea of Galilee and you look at the coastal towns, it was actually a lot easier to sail back and forth on a boat than to actually trek it, uh, the circumference of the Sea of Galilee was pretty big. We talked about it, about the third, the surface area of Middlesex County. So they would encounter these squalls, and we talked about the meteorological reasons for these storms. So you have two demon-possessed men who are drawn to the Lord, and that raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? A, was there some of the men's will left where they saw Jesus, and even though they were just struggling with these demons taking them over, that they, they, they... their legs were like, we got to get to Jesus. I can't take this anymore. I can't live like this. Or B, or maybe it was a combination, was it the demon's idea to make a beeline for Jesus? Remember in Job chapter 1, when God called the meeting for all the angels? Report. Yes, the good ones that support him, but Satan also had to report before the living God. And he says, so what are you doing? So have you considered my servant Job? You know? And, you know, Satan was going to and forth across the face of the earth. But he had to report to God. And I'm going to talk about the difference between God and Satan and try to make this clear. But, and again, so, we, so we're going to go through this and we're going to see also the dichotomy between the man speaking in his voice and the demon speaking through him. Um, and, and imagine the disciples trying to write this. So you've got, you got to cut them some slack if we're a little confused, which I think is pretty clear. Uh, you know, they, they're probably blown away as they're watching, you know, and, and the demons and they, they transfer to the pigs and, you know, the disciples were just people. They probably stayed real close to Jesus. You know, I don't want them, one of them touching me, but, you know, we'll, we'll look and see how they, they kind of characterize this. Here's another question. They're all good questions. How did they get possessed? Well, Leviticus and in, in many chapters of Leviticus talks to us about what I would call portals things that we can do as human beings to contact the underworld and give them permission to come into our lives. Now, David Berkowitz was one of those people. He speaks about the moment or around the time where we speak about our conversion to Christ. He speaks about the moment of time or the, uh, uh, the era of time where he was possessed and how his life completely changed looking back. That's his amazing stuff. God doesn't ask us not to do things because he wants to spoil our fun. He asks us not to do things because he doesn't want to see us get hurt. You know, when you think of uh, tarot cards or Ouija boards or those, those little places where they're going to read your palm or look into a crystal ball, some of them may be frauds, but some of them are inspired by Satan. And they want to get your attention. They want to get you listening so that you come back. Soothsayers, you know, witchcraft, all the things that it speaks about in Leviticus. Not good. 
little funny story, and I've told this before. Um, there is a place of one of these tarot card readings, and I actually drove by and I saw that that phone number and my phone number are one digit off. <laughs> so, so I had a woman call me and she said, is this Madam Goofball's tarot, whatever, tarot card reading place? And I'm like, no. She goes, okay. I said, wait a minute, don't go yet. So I said, I started talking about the Bible and this and that, and it wasn't a, a, an accident or a coincidence that you called my phone number. Actually, we had a good conversation. Then she hung up. Two minutes later, the phone rings. It's her again. I said, didn't I tell you not to try to call the tarot card reading place? I said, come on, God's given you a great opportunity here. So she's like, ah. she, you know, she ended up hanging up on me, but so I'll, I'll, I'll evangelize anybody, you know, it doesn't matter. I do want to speak after service too, or at the end of service, to some that may feel that maybe they've engaged in this and, and they're panicking right now. Well, what if I, well, what if, if you're sitting here and you're listening to the word and it's ministering to you and you're not convulsing or foaming at the mouth, you're probably in good shape. <laughs> but we can talk about that later if you still have questions. Verse 3. So it says, the, the man who had his dwelling among the tombs and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. So this is the background. I love the way this is broken up. You know, I, I kind of put the segments in here, but I love the way you, know, you, you really get a full picture of this story. Now, Mark's gospel is the shortest gospel, but this account is the longest account when it comes to comparing it with Matthew and Luke. So this, to Mark, was very important, and it was some things that he really wanted us to understand here. So the second uh, segment is the background. What happened before the encounter? What happened before Jesus showed up with the disciples on the shore? Now, I have a theory about demon possession and how we treat it as society, but I'll get to that after point C. But a few things we can know about these demon-possessed men. Number one, they lived among the tombs. They spent the majority of their time with the dead and rotting corpses. Doesn't sound like much of a good time. Satan wants us secluded and separated from life with others. Or he wants us with, like the two men, he wants us with others that are also have no hope and they feed off of each other negatively. They commiserate together. Right? Hence the two men situation. I've had a, I had a recent conversation with a counselor, and we just talked about how Satan tries to isolate. No matter what the sin is that you're involved in or that you're, you're struggling with, when Satan can get you alone, he does his best work. Right? Just like with these men, they were isolated from society. B, they couldn't be shackled. Matthew's gospel says that they were exceedingly fierce People were probably terrified of them. If they saw them, they just ran the other way. Now, I guess you could say if you're looking to burn in the lake of fire for eternity, if you sell your soul to the devil here, there are some benefits. To these men, it was superhuman strength. Maybe to some thinking they can, nobody can bind me. I can break any shackle. However, this is what Satan does. If you give him your life, what he will do is he will enhance your temporal characteristics. To them, it was strength. To others, it may be fame, fortune. Maybe God's taking too long. Maybe some are, con are considering the Lord, 
But they're also considering other options. And the other options say, I'll give it to you now. God, I've got to wait. I've got to be patient. I've got to continue praying. Now I'll go with this. I'll go with door number two. Thank you very much. And many people do that because it's enticing. It's enticing. C, they cried out and they cut themselves. They lived a torturous existence. When we're deceived by the enemy or the world system, we become self-deceived, self-destructive, and one day at the end of our life sit in a pile of ashes that could have been a fruitful life. Worse, they lived like animals, these two men. As you start to read this, they lived like subhumans. They didn't live like, like normal functioning members of society. And we spoke about last Sunday the peace that surpasses all understanding. These men had no peace. All they had was fear and torment. Remember 1 John 4, 18? That's a great portion of scripture that we covered. Society had no answers back then, and I've got to tell you, they don't have any answers today. Enter David Berkowitz again. Now, I had a theory for a while, and I felt that, you know, we're such a modern society, we don't believe in spiritual things, you know, largely if you look at the secular world, and we have our technology, and we have to explain everything away through science, and there's no such thing as a supernatural. So when we deal with maybe the criminally insane, maybe serial killers, maybe these types of situations, what do we do with them? Well, we can't say it's a demon because society doesn't believe in that. So what do we do is we drug them up, give them heavy drugs, and incarcerate them. That's what happened to David Berkowitz. He was crying out for help. There was problems in his life. He was a problem as a child and as a young adult, and eventually he gave his whole life to Satan. And then he murdered uh, a few people in New York in the 70s. But they, they incarcerated him. They probably drugged him up for a while. He met with an evangelist in prison, and he got saved. He was exercised. The demon was cast out of him. Now he's a completely different person. Would it have been better if somebody figured this out a long time ago before he murdered those people? Now, don't get me wrong. He takes full responsibility for what he's done. He's not distancing himself from it. That's why he wants to stay in prison and not be freed. But this is society's uh, reaction. You say this to the educated in the maybe psychological, uh, psychiatric field or uh, the, the high, you know, the high lofty ivory tower educators, demon possessions, they'll laugh at you. They'll think that you need the drugs, you know what I'm saying? You're seeing delusions. <laughs> so they'll diagnose you and give you a prescription and send you on your way. That's the way the world looks at it. Verse 6. I got to tell you something. As a police officer for 23 years, I've seen some amazing stuff. People that don't need to be near society, don't need to be near your children. They are just, they're just animal-like. They're savage. And across, it cuts across all demographics. It's not pretty. Verse 6. But when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God that you do not torment me. So the third segment here is the interaction. Right? The religious leaders and the public didn't really know what was going on. They heard some discussion, and maybe if their hearts were hard, they chalked it up to the guy was insane. But, you know, obviously the demons, again, had to fall under the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, in Mormon doctrine, under their Gospel Principles book, and I could give you chapter and verse, they say that Lucifer or Satan and Jesus were spirit brothers. That's absurd. 
And again, it's in their own material. Oh, you, you, one of the missionaries come to your door, show it to them chapter and verse. Some of them don't even know that. Well, obviously, when we read the totality of Scripture, we realize that that's not true. So verse 6, he ran and worshipped Jesus, and 7, he cried out. So the Son of God, even in the form of a man, held authority over the demonic realm. Now, God gave us something very special. The angels, the ones that serve him, serve him. You know, they, they serve at his pleasure. The ones that rebelled have to listen to him, and they can only go so far when they deal with us. He, he stops them. But God gave you and I free will. Those people who, you know, the last several Sundays, we've been riding a high in this church. How many people have come to the front? I didn't offer them a toaster before they came in. I didn't, you know, sweeten the pot or a $25 Amazon gift certificate. They did it of their own free will, right? Right, guys? Did I offer you anything? I don't think so. So the thing is that God gives us free will to make that decision, to read his word, to understand the truth of who he is, and to respond to that. That's beautiful. Right? We're, we're different from the angels. We are the object of his affection. It's pretty amazing stuff. I, I'll read you two. So basically, we, we serve God out of adoration or later on, obligation. When the great white throne judgment comes, nobody's going to have choice anymore. That's when the, a newer dispensation he, he ushers in to, to the creation, to eternity, and that's it. So time is short. You know, if you're hanging on the fence, don't wait. You know, don't, don't wait. Don't put it off another day. But let me read to you Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Again, this concept of we worship God out of adoration or later on, obligation. To me, I'm choosing adoration. I'm going to take door number one. I think that's a, a better deal by far. So 2, 9, Philippians. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him, meaning Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, we do it now willingly because the word ministers to us. We look at God as our wonderful Father who loves us dearly but there's going to be those that later on will we'll see him as the, in, in obligation, he'll, they'll see him as the warrior who has to finally eradicate sin from his creation and start everything new. It's our choice. Now, a little nuance in Matthew is that the demons say, have you come to torment before the time? Now, this is a time of their punishment, which their judgment is imminent. It's coming. They do have a little time left in the dispensation that we live in. And boy, are they wreaking havoc as much as they can. Read the newspaper in our society. You know, even what I, we talked about before service with pastors. And i got to tell you, in my nine years as a senior pastor, I've seen a lot. I've seen it more times than I care to see it. So there's a strange eschatological, which means end times prophecy. There's a strange eschatological doctrine of the preterists who believe that Satan right now is bound. That everything that happened in Revelation at the time had already occurred. And there's no future events, which is ridiculous. I mean, if Satan is now bound and he's in the abyss, he's doing a heck of a lot of... God's not paying attention. He didn't put enough security guards around him. So, you know, and every once in a while I'll throw these things in for those of you that are advanced and understand what I'm talking about. Again, it's just different end times uh, doctrines and, and things that we go through. Verse 8. For Jesus said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. 
Then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding near that location, near the mountains. And all the demons begged him, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. Again, you got sort of a spokesperson speaking to Jesus, and then they kind of, their voices are heard. It's really kind of creepy. I mean, if you saw it, probably freak you out, all right? I'm sure that Jesus had a whole bunch of people kind of lining up behind them as this was going on. So the fourth segment for this morning, I call the negotiation. And Jesus IDs the suspects as legion. Now, legion, understand, in those days was, could have been Roman, it could have been Greek, but legion was a word at the time the Romans dominated. Uh, it meant that it was a, a military division, a detachment of troops, and legion, a legion could have consisted in, in the human world, Roman soldiers, of between 3,000 and 6,000 soldiers. That's a lot. So there was a whole bunch of demons and this man having a party at his expense. And check this out. You ever see those, like, uh, <laughs> I love action movies. There's the hero, and the hero's there by himself, and he's outnumbered by all these thugs. And uh, the hero goes, well, there's only one of me and five of you. I guess you guys need to go back and get some backup. You know what I'm saying? There were thousands of these demons and only one Jesus. Probably wasn't even a thought in their mind. We're not tangling with him. Jesus is truly the best action hero that we could ever imagine. Because the stuff we see on TV, it's, it's acting. Jesus does it in real time. How could, Christian, how could any Christian sect say that Jesus was only a man, right? The demons were more convinced, convinced of Christ's deity than the Jehovah Witnesses. And I've had many talks with them and really nice conversations. And, um, you know, in John 8 and John 10, uh, there's some situations with Jesus and the religious leaders. You know, it's amazing that we can look at what the demons say and what the religious leaders say and learn more about Jesus than some Christian sects today. So I'll give you an example. I, I kind of let them down this road. I said, so would you say the Pharisees really knew the law? Oh, yes. Well, would you say that the Pharisees knew the law that pertained to blasphemy? Oh, oh yes, they do. And I said, um, so let me show you in, in these scriptures where the Pharisees say, Jesus, we're going to stone you to death because you're a blasphemer, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Because they say, well, Jesus never said in the scripture that he was God. Well, not only did he, but even the religious leaders were going to kill him because he equated himself with God and they didn't buy it. So that's, um, you know, again, it's, it's pretty good. It's, it's all in the scripture. In Luke 8.31, the demons begged Jesus not to send them into the abyss. I guess you could say they were looking for a plea bargain or something, but the abyss is translated from the Greek or transliterated, the word is abusos. So in the English, we get abyss. It retained most of its form from the Greek. And the abyss is a deep bottomless pit spoken about in Revelation 20, 1 through 3. The abusos is the beginning of sorrow for the demons. So the demons didn't want this. They're like, all right, now that we're, you're, you're right in our face, we know that you have the power to do something with us, but please don't send us into the abyss. This is what happens in, in biblical eschatology. What happens is the demons end up at some point in the abyss, Right, then Satan leads a failed war against God again. You think he would have learned. He's finally put down for good, and Satan and his false uh, prophets and 
the rebellious demons end up in the lake of fire uh, for all eternity to be judged. And that's how it goes down. So the demons didn't want this to be the accelerated program. They still wanted a little bit of freedom because they knew that their time was short. Isn't this fascinating? I mean, when you really start to get into this, you, you imagine people standing by, like, listening. Well, what's the abyss? You know, like having these discussions. What were they talking about? Why does it sound like there's a lot of people talking through them? You know? I, I just do that. I really get into the story. I, I, I try to look at it from all different angles. Um, it just, I just love this stuff. They also say to Jesus, don't send us out of the country. I looked up that word country. That could also be understood as the word territory. And I've talked to many about territory, about how, you know, Satan wants you on his side. He wants you in the world. When God comes into your life, Satan doesn't want to lose you. No army wants to lose land that they've already taken. That's like the first understanding in warfare. When you take a a plot of land from the enemy, hold your ground. Don't let them push you back. World War II, any of these wars you can see. Now, Russia's kind of doing with Ukraine, trying to get as much as they can, and they're going to flood the place with troops and stand their ground and say, now this is our territory. You can't have it back. So territory might have been referring to the man's body as a host. They wanted that territory. They didn't want to lose it. So you have this, again, this salvo, this conversation going on. I want to read Matthew 12, which I've read before. There's a contextual issue here. But I want to just kind of go through some things really briefly since we're talking about demon possession. Matthew 12, starting with verse 43. Jesus says, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest, and he finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house, the man, from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Possibly, maybe the guy went to church. Maybe, you know, he's trying to clean his life up. So it's, it's clean, but it's not barring the demon from getting back in. Only the presence of the Holy Spirit would do that. And that happens when you're born again. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, doesn't want to lose that territory. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. So it shall be with this wicked generation. Now, he was speaking about the generations that Jesus came, did the miracles and such, and they should have known better, and he taught them, and then they they rejected him. Oh, bad idea, bad idea. But you can also apply this to people. When I think of a tug of war, you know, you've got two teams that they they have the rope, and they're pulling back and forth, and, and how do you know who wins? Well, it's obvious if you yank hard enough and the other team falls in the mud that's an easy indicator but usually what happens is there's a rope or some type of obvious colored flag in the center when it when it starts and what happens is that rope that flag goes back and forth back and forth until there's a a pre-described line that when it crosses that other team won i would just say to you and i've talked to many others who kind of go back and forth i would just say don't be that flag because that's a very hectic life to lead And we see what happens in the scripture. That doesn't mean, let me just say this, new believers, it doesn't mean you're not going to sin. It doesn't mean you're not going to struggle with stuff. Maybe sometimes for many years. Maybe through your whole Christian existence. But this is an obvious, you know, this kind of dabbling in both worlds. All right? And, And certainly as Christians, we need to be careful of, those portals that I spoke about in Leviticus. You know, repent of that. Lord, I'm sorry I I dabbled with that. I shouldn't have done that. I know you hate that. I I just want to be with you, Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. It's a done deal. Verse 13. 
And at once Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had, had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Interesting reaction. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him, who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with Jesus to depart from their region. Kind of sad. So the fifth point is the aftermath. We've got one more to go after this. So the, the pigs... You know, they don't want to be demon-possessed. Sometimes the pigs are smarter than people, you know. They don't want to be demon-possessed. They were, they're simple animals, and all they could think of was just stampede, and they ended up in the water. You know, David Berkowitz, uh, I'm, I'm reading his testimony, and he spoke about a defining point in his life where he started hanging out with friends, and they were practicing the occult. And he read Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible, and he got deeper into this. I mean, his, his beginnings weren't good, but he just totally gave himself. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny. I'm looking at this. And I also read an article years ago about farmers, pig farmers today, and they were annoyed. This was an, uh, this weird article. And they basically said, you know, in American culture, it's fashionable in our vernacular to call somebody a pig or you know, they're not smart or they're not good looking. And these farmers, it was weird. They were defending their pigs and saying, in some instances, he goes, well, you know, pigs are very smart. In some instances, they're almost as smart as people. I would say in this instance, they are smarter than people. I mean, there are some today that still, they worship the, the black arts. They, they worship in the occult. They're almost asking for these creepy dark spiritual figures to come into their life. So in that instance, definitely the pigs are smarter than people. I'm just going to say it. Now, if Peter was around back then, Jesus might have been in a little trouble because they went into the water. I'll tell you this. I'm an animal lover, and I struggle with this at first, but we have to understand a few things about this. Maybe if Jesus didn't do it this way, they would have been kind of free to roam around and inhabit another person. And when it comes to an animal versus a person... Well, you know, that's, Jesus didn't want that to happen. Maybe the other issue as well is that this display proved that a miracle had taken place. Sometimes we read things in the scripture and we, we question it. Well, didn't Jesus know? Well, didn't... And basically it's written so that we can understand it, you know. So Luke's gospel tells us that at least one of the men at the end was at the feet of Jesus. As Pastor Cliff told us a few weeks back, that's the most needful place. In addition, they were clothed, right? Because before they were naked, um, they were calm, and they were in their right mind. When you are restored by Christ, your dignity comes back to you. When you are a Bible-believing Christian and you live according to God's precepts in his word, your dignity is restored. Peace is restored. The mind is healed, and we're able to think more clearly. Now, for those of us who have lived many years in the world and then became a Christian and we observe the differences you know, in our lives, you know, we, uh, I, I hope sometimes that people I used to hang out with don't remember a lot, you know what I'm saying? Because there's a big difference. I certainly wasn't thinking clearly. Um, you know, there's dignity, there's peace, there's all those things. 
And many seek the world's solutions. They're shortchanged or made worse and end up coming to God last. But you know what? Even if this morning he's your last option, come to him. He's that loving. He's that merciful. He's not going to say, well, you came to me last, so in heaven I'm going to find a place all the way in the back for you. He's not like that. He's not like people. He knows that he might be the last stop. His arms are still open wide for you. And he opened them really wide on the cross. What was the response from society after the demon-possessed men were freed? Number one, they were afraid. They were afraid. The world sees what Christ can do even today, and it's afraid. It doesn't understand it. And that's one of the reasons when we look at why. The world doesn't understand. Governments of men and women don't understand. They can't understand with the temporal mind. They can't dissect it. They can't legislate it. They can't tax it. They can't control it. So therefore, society run by men and women fear it. Makes perfect sense. 2,000 years ago today, go back and forth. A lot of time has passed, but people are the same. Number two, society's action after society's thought was send Jesus away. Get him out of here. Please leave. We know that you can do these things, but go. Go back in the boat. When you ask Jesus to leave, he will because he's a gentleman. But when he leaves, his peace will leave with him. And I think that's why in our country, society is doing so crummy. Because American society is saying, Jesus, we have better things than you. Please go. And we see the degradation. We don't understand. But I think as believers, we understand. You have city schools and... You know, look at the, the, the recent, not even city schools, the stabbing, shooting. I mean, you have schools now that 100 years it wasn't like this. You need armed security, police in the schools. Because even the kids, they have no hope. But what do you expect when you teach a kid that he evolved from some lower form of sea slime and his life doesn't mean anything and there's no hope and there's no God? You know, it doesn't take a genius. And especially if the kids come from a poor family, and you could die tomorrow because where you live is pretty dangerous. So what do you think the kid's going to do? Well, I'm, I might as well do something, make my mark in the world, get something, steal, do whatever. Because there's no accountability, there's no God, there's no love, there's no hope for me. How do people not figure this out? In the public arena, it's the same, same way. The ACLU are court bullies. They go in with their team of lawyers and they, they try to bully their way around and get uh, Christianity removed from every part of public life. In some areas, it's encroaching on business, and in some areas, they're t- saying what can be said from the pulpit. Well, there's free se- speech for certain people, but not certainly for everyone. This is what I find amazing, amazing is that God is still allowed in the prisons. <laughs> right, Arnie? <laughs> God is still allowed in the prisons. So you, from, from a child to an adult, you teach these ridiculous things, screw up a person's life, they commit crimes, there's no God, there's no truth, there's moral relativism and pluralism, and they mess up their lives, and finally when their lives are messed up, okay, now we'll, we'll let them find out about God, because our prisons are violent. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so this is what you have. You ever read the paper? I know some of the older generation, I've heard it. You know, horrible crimes, graphic in the paper. That person's an animal. Well, man will be reduced to an animal 
because we share a lot of DNA with the animal kingdom. But what separates us is the fact that we can have the spirit of God. So you're teaching people bad things. You're teaching them things that cause a self-destruction and dysfunction in their lives. And then they, when they behave like a lower life form, you say that they're wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, if somebody's violent, they should be taken out of society. But it's really sad that at the end of their life, then, we, then we'll throw the preachers in there in the prison and say, okay, talk to this person because they're violent. Son of Sam, again. I mean, his, his whole life is a parallel to this. One of the underlying reasons that they wanted Jesus to leave, if we remember, is that he hurt the pig farming business. Right? Those were somebody's pigs. And now they're floating in the water. And they're no good to the person who owned the pigs. And if there was lawsuits back then, they probably would have sued Jesus for that. But I'll just say this. Sometimes people can allow their business, their work, their jobs, their addiction to their jobs to be an excuse for why they don't grow in their relationship with the Lord or relationship with others. And sometimes Christians fit that category too. You know, everything needs to be put in perspective. Or if a person helps, they feel the need to dominate because they're an accomplished in the world. It doesn't work the same way in God's economy where they want to serve the way they want. And at the end of a person's life, if they're, if they're so immersed and, and, and so attached to the business, 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 that's always first, that they become elderly and they realize that I've missed some opportunities in life. I know God's been, and I've talked to some that have said that, you know, a little less of this, a little less of buying that, a little more of the things of the Lord. Verse 18, last few verses. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him, begged him that he might be with him. So certainly the guy, at least one of the guys who was exercised or freed, you know, he was grateful. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. This guy was on fire, man. I mean, he was like a, a on fire evangelist. He went to the Decapolis, which was the 10 pagan cities, and he was given this message, man. Probably a, a difficult audience, but he was doing it. So the sixth point is the commission. Gratitude. Gratitude. Jesus said that he who is forgiven much loves much. Sometimes those of us that, you know, we realize what, what Christ saved us from. We just want to go tell everybody. You know, we just want to, well, you, can you talk about anything else but Jesus? You know, it's like, oh, it's my whole life. You know, I'm, I've changed and my countenance is different and look what he's doing in my life and I still have struggles, but the Lord carries me through them. How could you not be excited about that? Well, that's what I want to do. I want to do what this guy did. I want to tell everybody what he saved me from. A few truths today that need to be expressed before we close. Number one, when I was, when I was growing up, how many of you, I'm dating myself, it was a scary movie. I like to watch scary movies. And then I couldn't sleep at night, but, <laughs> or I'd sleep with sheets over my head. You know, how many of you, when you were younger or whatever, you watched the movie The Exorcist? I mean, that movie went on for a long time. Now, if the guy just did it the way Jesus said, the movie would be five minutes long. But you've got to put all the Hollywood theatrics. You know, it, it almost makes it look like Satan is equal to God or stronger in some instances. 
If you have ever watched a real exorcism or uh, cleansing of a house, it doesn't take long because Jesus gave us the power to do that. So get Hollywood out of your minds. Uh, it's not a long process and he's throwing people out the window and stuff. It just doesn't work like that. Okay? The second thing is Jesus said, number one, tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. This man was given a new lease on life. Such is the testimony of the born-again believer, a change. And also, we need to be bearing fruit. There's an expression that says, come as you are, and the rest of it is, but don't stay that way. You know, God wants us to change. He wants to change us for the better. Because when we come to him, he loves us, but we're not in a good state. And he's got to do things with us. Jesus can restore anyone's life and all the years the locusts have eaten. Just ask David Berkowitz of that. Third point, Jesus also says to him, and I divided this up into two parts, he says, tell them that the Lord has had compassion on you. Our God is a God of compassion and mercy. And brothers and sisters, that's one of the things I think that appeals to all of us the most. All of us the most. You know, if we're not completely self-deluded and narcissistic, we know that we come with baggage. And the Lord is merciful. He's compassionate. You know, it's, if, if honestly, if you're in a few years of, of being a Christian and you still have that maybe denominational mentality that the Lord's always mad at me, it's wrong. Read your Bible. He loves you. He loves you. He wants repentance, but he, he just loves you. He loves you. Actually, when we were in the Berean room Friday, we had some good discussions about this. It was really good. A brother had asked some questions and, you know, try to express the love of God and the compassion of God. And the last thing is that there's victory in Jesus, not defeatism. This story ends in victory, not defeat. The demons didn't win. Jesus didn't say, you know, guys, I'm usually 99% and I just couldn't do this one. He's 100%. And even when we talked about before service, the, the, the worship has to be in Christ alone, not anybody else. Jesus took this man from bondage to freedom, and he can do the same with you and me. Let's pray.